Would you turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 9, verse 1. Last Sunday morning I began this message and this passage which is about the cure for blindness. And it's taken from the story of a man who had been blind from birth and was healed by Jesus. And in those ancient days, much like today, to be blind from birth was a hopeless situation. There were no accounts in the ancient world of people who were born blind who ever recovered their sight. And yet here was Jesus healing a man who had been blind from birth. It's a reminder to us that in even hopeless situations, there's still hope. Anyone hear me this morning? In hopeless situations. Who has a hopeless situation this morning? In your family? Among your friends? In your life? In hopeless situations. Situations that we are beyond our power, anyone else's power to fix. In hopeless situations, there's still hope. There's always hope. The cure for blindness. Let's read the chapter, the story once again. It says, as Jesus was passing by, He saw a man blind from birth. His disciples questioned him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus answered. This came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. We must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After he said these things, he spit on the ground, made some mud from the saliva, and spread the mud on his eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he left, washed, and came back soon. His neighbors and those who formerly had seen him as a beggar said, Isn't this the man who sat begging? Some said, He's the one. No, others were saying, but he looks like him. And he kept saying, I'm the one. Therefore they asked him, Then how were your eyes open? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud spread it on my eyes and told me, go to Siloam and wash. So when I went and washed, I received my sight. Where is he? They asked. I don't know, he said. They brought the man who used to be blind to the Pharisees. The day that Jesus made mud and opened his eyes was a Sabbath. So again, the Pharisees asked him how he received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, he told them. I washed. And I can see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he doesn't keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, How can a sinful man perform such signs? 
and there was division among them. Again, they asked the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? He's a prophet, he said. The Jews did not believe this about him, that he was blind and received sight, until they summoned the parents of the one who had received his sight. They asked him, is this your son, the one you say was born blind? How then does he now see? We know this is our son and that he was born blind, his parents answered, but we don't know how he now sees and we don't know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they were afraid of the Jews, since the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him, Jesus, as Messiah, he would be banned from the synagogue. This is why his parents said, he's of age, ask him. So a second time they summoned the man who had been blind and told him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether or not he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, and now I can see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? I already told you, he said, and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You don't want to become his disciples too, do you? They ridiculed him. You're that man's disciple, but we're Moses' disciples. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but this man, we don't know where he's from. This is an amazing thing, the man told them. You don't know where he's from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he listens to him. Throughout history, no one has ever heard of someone opening the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he wouldn't be able to do anything. You were born entirely in sin, they replied, and are you trying to teach us? Then they threw him out. When Jesus heard that they had thrown the man out, he found him and asked, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? He asked. Jesus answered, You have seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. I believe, Lord, he said, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment in order that those who do not see will see, and those who do see will become blind. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things, and they asked him, We aren't blind too, are we? If you were blind, Jesus told them, you wouldn't have sin. But now that you say, we see, your sin remains. I told you last Sunday morning that from this chapter, this story, I was going to show you some lessons from it, make some biblical points from the story, and then then I was going to give you the cure for blindness. So last week we covered five lessons in the story. Very quickly, they were, first, all suffering 
is not the direct result of those who are suffering. That makes sense? All suffering is not the direct result of those who are suffering. Lesson number two. We have a limited time to do the work of God. We must work while it's day before the night comes. Third, our responsibility is to trust and obey what Jesus says, what He tells us to do, like the blind man in the story did here. Fourth lesson, the healing of Jesus makes a noticeable difference. The healing of Jesus makes a noticeable difference. And then the fifth lesson, those who have been healed by Jesus have an obligation to explain the difference in their lives. And that difference would be the one that Jesus has made. That brings us to a sixth lesson this morning. It is that religious people can confuse their rules with God's rules. Religious people can confuse their rules with God's rules. That's what the Pharisees did here. For that matter, that's what the Pharisees were always doing. Confusing their rules with God's rules. The Pharisees, you see, were what we would call legalist. Legalists are people who, in a philosophical, theological sort of way, think that getting to God is something that is accomplished by the keeping of laws, even the laws of God. And beyond that, legalists are people, at least some of them, who feel like that Staying close to God, getting closer to God, is about laws, it's about rules, it's about keeping those. They are people who don't understand grace like they should. That we're saved by grace, but that even in being saved, we live out the saved life still by grace. I'll tell you something else that every legalist does. Because of their infatuation with rules, God's rules are never enough. So they help God out by adding more rules to God's rules. Additional laws to God's laws. That's exactly what the Pharisees had done with God's command concerning the Sabbath. Do you remember that command? Honor the Sabbath day. Keep the Sabbath day holy. The way that they were to do this was by not working on the Sabbath day. God had made the week seven days. God had done this in the first week of creation. During those first seven days, God had worked for the first six days in creating the world. And God rested on the seventh day. Not because He was tired, but because we needed to have a pattern of how the weak should run, and that pattern would come from the way that God dealt with that. He he therefore set apart the Sabbath day, and He said the people of God were to honor it 
by treating it differently than they treated all the other days of the week. That was one law. Over time, the Pharisees had added about 40 laws to govern the Sabbath. That's about our, our ratio, isn't it? For every one that God gives, we're going to give about 40 more. I've told you before the story when I was pastor at Elkdale and we bought a new bus. And we set apart a committee to come up with bus rules. And it was presented on a Wednesday night and there were 11 laws to govern the usage of the bus. And it wasn't just those 11, but under the 11 there were subsets, subpoints. And when I presented it to the church that evening, I made the joke that it shows us how bent we are as religious people to loving laws because it took us one more law to govern the usage of the bus than God had come up with to govern the usage of all of life. I mean, literally, one of the laws was there is to be no drug usage on the bus. Really? Does that need to be said? Oh, I didn't know I wasn't supposed to smoke weed on the bus, on the church bus. But we're that way. Legalists are that way. The the Pharisees were that way. And over time, as legalists add laws to God's laws, their laws become indistinguishable from God's laws in their own minds. So that they can no longer tell the difference between which law is one that God has said and which law is one that they have come up with. And then inevitably what happens is the laws that legalists have come up with become the ones that they love the most and care for the most and that they're most offended by when others don't live up to them, even to the exclusion of God's law. This same issue popped up in chapter 5 of John when Jesus healed the man who had been paralyzed for almost 40 years. On that occasion, like this occasion, the Pharisees concluded that Jesus wasn't from God. He couldn't be the Messiah. He couldn't be a representative of God because He didn't keep the Sabbath laws. The problem was that the Sabbath laws that He didn't keep were their Sabbath laws, not God's laws. And they came to this conclusion that He couldn't be from God in spite of what He had done on both occasions. It shows you the hardness of their religious hearts. On one occasion, a guy that had been paralyzed for 40 years was healed so that he could walk and move. And they weren't caught up in that at all. But simply that Jesus had healed him on the wrong day. And on this occasion, a man that had never saw any, had never seen anything, I almost messed up, didn't my English teacher? (laughs) Speaking English is a lot more difficult than writing English. Sometimes it gets out before you can stop it. 
Sorry, Paula. I, I would have had to repent at the end of the service. <laughs> and here they weren't impressed at all that a man who had never seen anything could see. They were just bothered that Jesus had healed him on the Sabbath. In spite of the fact that Jesus had taught earlier that God made the Sabbath for man, he didn't make man for the Sabbath. And in spite of the fact that earlier Jesus had said, you know what, God works on the Sabbath, and I'm God because I'm Lord of the Sabbath, and the rules that apply to people don't apply to me. Because I'm God, I make the rules. In spite of all of that, they were very offended. They even wanted to kill him. And the sad application of this is that we are just like them. Most of us. And if we're not, we sure can be. I say that we're just like them because as religious folks, I'm speaking to most of us, having been brought up in a conservative home, conservative churches, having been brought up as law-abiding people, we see laws naturally as a means to get to God. And the only way we understand relationship to God is through this lens of law. And it's not just that we see that as the, the means to get to law. That's why most people understand that to become a Christian, they've got to become a better person. Which isn't the gospel at all, isn't it? Or is it? Not only does it get us to God, but naturally we, we think that once we're saved, maybe even by grace through faith, that then the law steps in and becomes the most important thing in our life. If you want to draw closer to God, it's got to be through the law and through focusing on these laws and keeping these rules. And so we add laws because we love laws. And we become more concerned with our rules than God's. We're more offended when our rules are broken than God's. And we conclude that those who break our rules can't belong to God because they're breaking the most important rules that there are, which are our rules. Would you agree with me that we need to keep, when it comes to laws, we need to keep our focus on God's laws? I hope that you haven't heard anything I've said already to be downplaying in any way the laws of God. The laws of God are very important. They're based on His character. They reveal to us our lack of character, our sin, our need for salvation in another way than through keeping these laws because we've already broken them. And once we are saved by grace through faith, these laws of God become a pattern from which we govern our life. Life is best lived in this way. And in salvation, we have the power to obey God's laws. 
God's laws are important. Jesus did not come to abolish them. He came to fulfill them. But wouldn't you also agree with me that in God's laws, we have plenty to keep us occupied? The thing I find strange and funny about, and I was, I'll say it this way, our obsession with rules, including mine, is that when we add laws to God's laws and become really obsessed with them, it almost implies that we've mastered God's laws and we need a new challenge in our life. But none of us have come anywhere close to mastering God's. We have plenty to occupy us with His. We certainly don't need our focus to be diverted by others. And all the while that we're, by grace, striving to pattern our life after God's laws, when it comes to others and their relationship to laws, don't we need to be merciful? I mean, wouldn't we want to give them the benefit of the doubt like we want them to give us the benefit of the doubt? Don't we need to be considerate? Certainly we're not to be self-righteous and judgmental. Definitely we don't need to be legalist. Legalism has never brought anyone to saving faith in Christ. And legalism will not strengthen any Christian's faith. The sixth lesson here, religious people can confuse their rules with God's. Seventh lesson, there is plenty of evidence to believe what Jesus said about Himself. Plenty of evidence to believe what Jesus said about Himself. So, what did He say about Himself already? He said in the Gospel of John, He's the Son of God. He's the Son of Man, that He's the Christ, the Messiah, that He is the I Am, which is the name for God, that He is Lord, that He is Savior. He has said in recent chapters that He's the bread of life, that He's the living water, that He's the light of the world. There is plenty of evidence to believe what Jesus said about Himself. Look at verse 16. Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he doesn't keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, How can a sinful man, how can a man who's not from God, how can one who's not the Messiah, if you will, perform such signs? There's that word signs that's so important in the Gospel of John. We've seen it numerous times already. In fact, Through these first nine chapters in John, repeatedly I've carried you to chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, where John gives his reason for writing the gospel in the first place. He says, Jesus did many other signs. I couldn't write all of them. It'd take all the books of the world to write about all of them, but I've written the ones that I've written about. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that through believing that He's the Christ, the Son of God, you may have life, eternal life. John's whole purpose in writing this gospel that bears His name 
was to reveal not just miracles, but the signs, the miraculous things that Jesus did that pointed to who He was. What signs have we seen? What evidence have we already observed just in the first nine chapters of John? We have seen Jesus turn water to wine. We have seen Him heal the official son from long distance. We have seen Him heal that paralyzed man in chapter 5. We have seen Him feed the crowd of 5,000 men, not counting women and children with five loaves and two fish. We have seen Him walk on the water of the Sea of Galilee in the midst of a raging storm. We have seen Him calm that storm in a nanosecond. We have seen Him transport His disciples and the boat that they were in in a nanosecond to the other side of the sea. We've seen Jesus reference His upcoming resurrection that it would be the ultimate sign, the only sign that would be needed for people to believe. And now we've seen this sign in chapter 9. Look to verse 28 in the chapter. It says, They ridiculed this man and said, You're Jesus' disciple. We're Moses' disciples. Because we know God has spoken to Moses, but we don't know about this man. We don't even know where he's from. To which he responds, well, that's pretty amazing that you don't know where he's from. Considering the fact that he just gave me my sight. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners. But it's obvious that God listens to him. That there's some connection, big connection between him and God. He says in verse 32, throughout history, no one's ever heard of someone opening the eyes of a person born blind. This wasn't your ordinary miracle that Jesus did, as if any of them were ordinary. But this was even miraculous for the miracles of Jesus from a human perspective of looking at it. In verse 33, he says, if this man weren't from God, he wouldn't be able to do anything that is anything like this. So you see, there's plenty of evidence to believe what Jesus said about Himself. There's plenty of biblical evidence. I've only referenced the first nine chapters of John. The Bible's much bigger than that. Plenty of biblical evidence to believe what Jesus said about Himself. There's plenty of historical evidence to believe it. You could read the accounts of non-Christian historians of that age or the ages shortly after this who will verify the miracles of Jesus, even in some cases the resurrection of this man named Jesus. There's plenty of contemporary evidence. Evidence today. Look around. Look at the remaining influence of Jesus 2,000 years later. No man has ever changed the world more so than Jesus. Most of the things that we would call advancements, at least culturally or socially in our modern era, somehow find their origin in Christ. Or the teaching of Christ. Look at the lives that He's changed. Look, look around this room. In this room... 
this morning, there are people that are as noticeably different as this man was. They didn't used to be blind like this man was, but they used to be something else. And Jesus healed them, and they're not the same. There's external evidence. There's internal evidence. So if you or anyone else doesn't believe, it's not for a lack of evidence. I hear people communicate reasons that they don't believe. And the truth is that your reasons aren't reasons at all. They're excuses. Quit justifying your unbelief. Quit seeking to justify your unbelief. There's plenty of evidence to believe what Jesus said about Himself. Lesson 8. The only thing we have to fear is the Lord. Not fear itself. We should fear not fearing the Lord. So about this time, it begs the question, do you fear God? Fear, the Bible says, is the beginning of wisdom. And if you wanted to put it in language like we find here in John 9, fear of God is the beginning of sight. One we'll never see spiritually apart from a healthy fear of the Lord. The parents in this story feared the Pharisees. They feared their fellow Jews. They feared being excommunicated or kicked out from their local synagogue, which in their understanding would have been synonymous with being kicked out of salvation. They were so afraid that they wouldn't even speak about the change in their son's life. Did you notice that? Very standoffish. At what should have been the happiest moment in their life, they weren't happy at all, at least in any external way. They couldn't even celebrate with their son because they were wrapped up in their fear. For us, there are all sorts of things that we fear. What are you afraid of this morning? Even you tough guys or tough gals. You don't have to announce it. But all of us are afraid of something. We fear the future. Death. Sickness. Trouble. We fear other people. We fear being embarrassed. We fear failure. Rejection. Persecution. A lot of people I hear fear the economy, an upcoming election. We fear our enemies. And like with the parents of this man, that fear robs us of all of our joy. It causes us to not celebrate the things in our life that are really worth celebrating. 
so occupied, so paralyzed by our fear. And in all these things that we fear, we're afraid of everything except the one thing that we should be afraid of. Isn't that ironic? We live in a nation full of fearful people. Just check out what medicines are the most prescribed ones. And in all of that fear, there's no apparent fear of God. It's why Jesus said, don't fear the one who can destroy your body. But you better fear the one who can destroy both your body and your soul in hell. The only thing we have to fear is the Lord. Ninth lesson. Some people just will not listen. Some people just will not listen. Look at verses 26 and 27. Then they ask him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he said, look, I've already told you. And he had, right? He told them multiple times. I've already told you and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Had they not heard? No, they had heard. They just hadn't heard the answer that they were looking for. Our kids are like this, right? That's why they keep asking us the same question when we've already given them an answer. It's because we haven't given them the answer that they're looking for. Well, I know so much about that because I used to do the same thing with Mama. With Daddy, I would go to my room where he couldn't see, and I'd I'd ask it away. They wouldn't listen. In spite of the evidence... How much more evidence do you need? There's a guy that all of them knew had been blind his whole life. Now he's seeing, he's talking to them, he's looking at them like he never has before. How do you explain people like this that just won't listen? Well, it comes from pride. It comes from arrogance. We see that in verse 34. You know, the man challenges them a little bit and their response is, Who are you to be telling us anything? You're a sinner. You were born in sin. You know why they say he's born in sin? Because he's been blind since he was born. In their theology, that was the surest sign that he was under a curse from God. And their power and their prominence and their prosperity in their theology, like a lot of people's theology today, by the way, was the surest sign that they were under the favor of God. You know what they would have said if they greeted you? I'm blessed. I'm blessed. (laughs) And all the while, they're under a curse. They just couldn't see it. You were born entirely in sin, and you're going to try to teach us? We're the teachers, sonny boy. Just come to our offices and look at our degrees. You probably don't even have a sixth grade education. Jethro Bodine is smarter than you are. No Beverly Hillbillies fans in the group this morning. You ever met someone who you can't teach anything? It's because they already know everything. It's hard to teach somebody who knows everything. 
And it's the biblical definition of what it means to be a fool. In chapter 8, verse 43, Jesus referenced it. He said to this same crowd, why don't you understand what I say? Because you cannot listen to my word. Do you see what he said there? He's taking it a step further. I've just been talking about how they wouldn't listen. And Jesus says in chapter 8, verse 43, it's because they couldn't listen. It shows you the seriousness of their sin. They couldn't hear. They couldn't believe. It's what Jesus meant in chapter 6, verse 44, when He said, No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws him. In chapter 6, verse 65, He said, This is why I told you that no one can come to Me unless it's granted to him by the Father. So here's the progression. People don't listen. They don't believe. And it's because they won't listen. But they won't listen because they can't listen. The next time we go to looking down our noses at our lost, unbelieving friends, how about we consider this and have just a little bit of compassion for them? Would you yell at a blind person for not being able to see? They're trapped in something that they don't even recognize is there. Prisoners of Satan and of the darkness. Is this you? I mean, are are you the person that can see others who won't listen to anything? And all the while, you're the one who won't listen? Look closer than others. Look a lot closer. Look in the mirror. Some people just won't listen. I'm pausing not because I don't know what to say next, but because I'm uh, in a matter of seconds trying to decide, do I want to go on (laughs) or do I want to stop? And I think the balance is leaning towards stopping, okay? And some of you are going, yes, yes! (laughs) Some of y'all prayed the prayer of Peter real quick. Save us, Lord! Save us! It wasn't a big, big flowery prayer. It was a real quick prayer. Save us, Lord! You've got these lessons, and we'll look at a few more in the next couple of weeks or a couple of weeks from now. But again, what it's really all about is this cure for blindness. And obviously what we can say about that cure for blindness at this point is that one part of the cure for blindness, the biggest part of the cure for blindness, is Jesus. He's not just the cure for blindness, He's the cure for all of our eels. He's the cure for all the world's eels. And it would be one thing for Him to be the cure. It's another thing for Him to actually cure. And that's where the good news comes in. The good news isn't just that He can cure. 
but that he does and he wants to cure he loves to he lives to he came to he said he came for the sick he said he came to seek and save to be cured of blindness spiritual blindness now even physical blindness in the the time of the regeneration you must have jesus Only He can do it. The cure for blindness can be found in no one and nothing else other than Him. This sounds a strange question to ask, but I'll ask it anyway, trusting you understand what I mean. Is there anyone here this morning who can see enough to know that you're blind? Anyone here this morning, based on this description of blindness, who can see enough to know that you're blind? If that's you, Jesus is your only hope. And hope for a cure begins with recognizing you're blind. So you tell Jesus about it. You admit it to Jesus. You say, I'm this, I'm these people. <laughs> really, in this story, you know who the blind people are? It's not the blind guy. It's the Jews. It's the Pharisees. Anybody see yourself in them? Turn from your sin. Your sin of unbelief. Turn from your sins to Christ. Believe on Him. For salvation. Are there others here this morning that would say, I once was blind, but now I see. Doesn't it make you want to celebrate Jesus? To praise Jesus? For His mercy and grace and reaching out to you and healing you? Or maybe you're you're sitting there this morning and a lesson that we've talked about from the story or a lesson from last week has been weighing heavily on you or, or multiple lessons from within it are doing the same and there's something that you need to do in response to that. Whatever that might be, uh, in just a moment would be the time to do it. Would you stand with me and bow your heads and close your eyes? Every week at this time, Father, I find myself being thankful for Jesus, more thankful. And thankful for Your Word, more and more thankful, that reveals Jesus to us. Help us to see that when we're confronted with Jesus, the Gospel, Your Word, with lessons from it, that we have an obligation to respond in faith and with repentance 
with obedience. Through your Spirit to reveal to each of us now what exactly that would look like in our life. I thank you for the moving and working of your Spirit, for the power of the Gospel. Demonstrate it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Before you.